Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Patrick Ishmael, David Stokes, and Susan Pendergrass from Show Me Institute. So, Patrick, it is the week after the legislative session has wrapped up. Um, it was almost five months of action or inaction in Jefferson City. What did you think of the final couple weeks? What was accomplished? What wasn't accomplished? And uh, what do you think the priorities are that are still out there? Yeah, you know, I, I think it was a very frustrating legislative session. And, you know, certainly I'm not alone in this. I think that uh, when you have filibusters happening from every corner of the ideological ideological spectrum in the Senate, I think that it makes it very hard to get business done. And I think at the core of this is, uh, you know, redistricting was a big issue. Frankly, uh, there should have been a special session last year that dealt with redistricting. And I think that you had that consumed so much of the legislative session and, and engendered so much, uh, uh, so many problems among the senators that, you know, the Senate is not very fa a fast mover anyway. Uh, and that made it only worse. So I think it made it difficult to get many priorities done. One of the priorities that didn't get done, of course, was uh, a Missouri Parents Bill of Rights, which we were very strong advocates for. And, and the idea behind Missouri Parents Bill of Rights is a reassertion that, you know, parents have a fundamental right to direct their kids' education and to ensure that they know what's being taught to their kids. And, and the fact that we had leadership in the Senate uh, certainly said that they were in support of it. Uh, leadership in the House, they certainly passed the bill uh, that would have created a Missouri Parents' Bill of Rights. The fact that it didn't get done uh, is, I, I think, really embarrassing. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, the uh, majority leader, uh, Caleb Rowden, said he, you know, would go home some nights and he felt embarrassed about kind of the difficulty that the Senate had in getting much done. And I think that's reasonable. I think that's a fair critique, like self-critique. I'm glad that, that you know, he, he's thought about that. And I think a lot of senators need to think about that because there were a lot of other things that, uh, you know, didn't get done. Initiative petition reform didn't get done. Uh, you know, it's not an issue that we've talked about, but sports gambling, there was an expectation that there would be uh, uh, legislation on that that would get done this year, and that didn't get done. There were a handful of things that did get across the finish line. You saw a voter ID bill, uh, which uh, we've talked about voter ID in the past and have been supportive of it, or at least I have been. Uh, and so that was good to see. Uh, you saw a, a tax, uh, uh, non-refundable tax credit that was passed. Uh, you know, you've seen a, a, a handful of other things that are, are good on the transparency front, but they're not, you know, life-altering or world-altering. Um, but, you know, I, it, it was a disappointing legislative session for me. I think that you did see some movement on the charter school side, some funding issues that I think that uh, Susan will talk about. Um, but uh, looking at it from 30,000 feet, the only thing that the legislative session seem, seems to have really been good at producing is spending money. Uh, we, we spent as a state about $45 billion or north of $45 billion this year. That is uh, typically uh, a figure that's more like $33, $34 billion. Uh, and so a lot, of, a lot of spending got done. A lot of it was from the federal government, but uh, not a lot of high priorities uh, of, I think, the majority party really got done. And I think that overall, it's the Senate's fault. I, I think that you need to see more leadership in the state, certainly. Uh, and I think that it was, in a lot of respects, embarrassing. I, I, I certainly hope that there's they're more productive next year. And maybe there will be a special session this year for some of these items. But um, I, I was overall pretty disappointed in this legislative session. David, there's a camp that says no news is good news. Gridlock is good. What was your take on the session? Well, that's, 
that's a that's a camp I subscribe to some some of the time. Certainly, that's a camp I would uh, spend spend the night at uh, at a at a beautiful summer forest in Minnesota over the summers. Uh, that said, there were things I supported in this legislative session that did not pass. Uh, Senator Koenig had a bill with with some with some re- very reasonable but beneficial reforms to special taxing districts to make their financial records more publicly available, other changes. And that act, it included uh, clarifying that St. Louis City and Kansas City cannot charge the earnings tax on remote workers who happen to work for businesses in the city if they're working from home out of the cities. Uh, Kansas City's not doing that, to be clear, but St. Louis is. So unfortunately, that didn't pass. It shouldn't even be necessary because the law is clear that they can't do it anyway. But in St. Louis, they're just going to invent the law till a court tells them they can't. Uh, finally, some broadband uh, bills, which limited, didn't didn't eliminate, but limited the ability of cities and counties to establish government-owned broadband companies, failed as well, and that would have, I think, that was needed for our state. But the good news was a couple, some terrible bills that failed, and some terrible policy ideas that did not move forward. Uh, tax credits was were one of those. The only big tax credit bill that I'm aware of that passed was a bill renewing a number of agricultural tax credits that had expired last year. So while I don't think we needed them at all, uh, we didn't pass any new tax credits. Uh, In fact, the only new tax credit put into that agricultural uh, tax credit bill was taken out uh, late in the process. So that was a very good thing that while, again, I don't support the renewals of the various things they, they kept, at least they got rid of a large new tax credit that was in there. And the film tax credit and a brand new entertainment studio tax credit, which were two. The film tax credit is so useless, the state actually got rid of it a decade ago, ago because it wasn't working. And yet, there in many years, there's an attempt to bring it back. So that neither of those new tax credits passed. And then the... One of the bigger surprises of the legislature was in prior years, there's been an attempt to bring a land bank to Springfield, the land bank that has failed in St. Louis and failed in Kansas City. Well, I guess Springfield wants to be on that failure train, too, because who who wouldn't want to follow in the footsteps of failure? But the bill this year went far beyond Springfield and would have allowed land banks in just about every city and county in the state of Missouri. So it was a terrible, it was a truly terrible idea. So it was very good to see the land bank bill fail. It, it, the bill it was attached to by the House did pass, but they had to take that part out of it due to the Senate closing up shop early. So to see land banks fail and mini tax credit legislation fail, I'd say, I'd say pretty good session on the whole from that perspective. All right. So you mentioned the Senate closing up shop a day early. You both have followed Missouri politics for a long time. Uh, it seems like a lot of the issues this session were as a result of interpersonal battles going on. Has it always been like this? Is it just recency bias that we think it's worse than ever now? Or uh, in your history of tracking the uh, Missouri legislature, has is there any precedent to this level of uh, inter- infighting that results in gridlock and not being able to do the basics? Well, I, I think, of course, there's some recency bias. There, there always is. And we always think, oh, politics used to, there used to be some golden age in the past, and there, there really never was. That said... I don't think there's any dispute that the level of of uh, animosity and battling within the Senate is far more than it was in a, a decade ago, or certainly two or three decades ago. 
and there were, you know, before term limits, and this isn't a diatribe on term limits, but before term limits, senators tended to stay as members of the Missouri Senate for quite some time, and they developed relationships and, and worked on those relationships. And I, would, I know several longtime state senators who served in the, as, as minority party Republicans in the 80s and 90s who will, who will tell you that they were, never, they were treated as one of 34 senators, not a member of the minority party. And the Senate worked very differently back then. And I'm not going back that far for this talk. I'm just going back to the, the 90s or first part of the 2000s. So I would like, on the whole, to see, hopefully see how that can come back. In the age of, of, of term limits, uh, and I know we had term limits since the mid-90s, at least they existed then, if they didn't go into effect quite for a few years later. I, I, it may be harder to get back to that, but I would like to see it. Patrick, what do you think? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, my my uh, time following the Senate uh, is more over the course of the last decade or so, and I, and I haven't seen this kind of rancor uh, in that time. And I, one issue that I think keeps recurring is this notion in the Senate that this behavior or that, you know, allowing for these filibusters and the way the filibusters are, are being conducted, that that is somehow a Senate tradition. And I don't think that that's that's really true. I think that ultimately you have to get your priorities done. And it's one thing to say, you know, there are, uh, you know, big issues and we're going to allow for uh, robust filibusters for extended periods of time. You can't have a filibuster that lasts months. You know, you can't have a filibuster that destroys the ability to get anything done, including, uh, you know, constitutional uh, objectives like uh, redistricting. You know, I, I think that that is, uh, un unfortunately, in, in, in the last 10 years, I think the filibusters, generally speaking, used to be between the parties. There were ex exceptions to that, of course, where you'd have a member of the majority party filibuster a, a majority party uh, priority, and, uh, you know, there, there would be compromise struck. But now, I mean, you're looking this year, and there are really kind of four factions. You have the majority caucus, you have this the conservative caucus, you have the Democrat Party, and then you have this kind of like bipartisan uh, 11, uh, like caucus of 11, which is more informal, but you know, all, all year long, they were sniping at each other and totally destroying any opportunity to really get anything done to the point that, you know, it, it looks like uh, the governor himself, I think has regrets about exactly how the session went. There's a story, uh, from Emily Manley from Fox two. And, uh, you know, the governor starts talking about how he thought that a parent's bill of rights should have gotten done, that there should have been uh, something done about critical race theory, you know, at least giving guidance to, um, to to school districts about how to handle that and how to to, to, to deal with that if, if it is in a given district. And it isn't everywhere like, you know, we've shown, as far as we can tell, our Show Me Curricular project has shown, though, that CRT is out there and that parents should at least be able to see those sorts of things. But, you know, the, the governor, I think, should have stepped in earlier. There was no reason for him to be silent or largely silent throughout this legislative session and allow for the, the Senate to kind of have the wheels fall off early on and then never put the wheels back on again. You know, it's, it's like the, the worst possible NASCAR pit stop in history uh, where they just never got back on the track. And so, um, no, I, I, I do think that, you know, it, there is always rancor in the Senate. Uh, but I think like uh, David said, uh, I don't think that the rancor you know, you know, decades ago ever looked like this for all sorts of reasons, but certainly in the last 10 years where I, when I've been tracking it and watching it and listening to how people deal with one another, uh, this is the worst that I'd ever heard it, and, uh, and that's saying something. I, 
I think a lot of the blame is being directed at the the members of the conservative caucus for it. And I, my own personal opinion is that I think the blame should be spread more spread more widely throughout the through the, through the legislature. And I don't think while they mo- certainly got most of the attention and probably did the majority of the filibustering, I certainly think that the they shouldn't they shouldn't be getting all all the blame here. The the entire Senate and legislature can take can take some of the blame for the can take a lot of the blame for the lack of progress on many things in the Senate. So uh, now I, I would add to that, too, though. I think that the conservative caucus was right about something. And this was pretty clear early on in the legislative session in January and February, where priorities dealing with education transparency, they were trying to amend it on the legislation and were, were being told, no, that led, that opportunity will come later. It will be a standalone bill. We will we will talk about it. We will debate it and we will pass it. But you can't amend it onto this piece of legislation for whatever the reason. And and by the end, that, that legislation never came forward. And so, you know, it, 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 you have I think in politics, especially in, in a body like the Senate, all you have really is your word. And and it doesn't really matter why you can't uh, follow through on your word if you can't follow through on it. Yeah, I think people are going to be upset about it. And I think the, David's exactly right. The Conservative Caucus did the vast majority of the filibustering, and it mainly dealt with, with I think, the the uh, congressional map for, you know, for whatever the reason, you know. But I, I, I do think that uh, the, the Conservative Caucus had a reasonable beef, a legitimate beef, and, and that legitimate beef ended up bearing out to be a, a, a beef that, um, they suspected would never get resolved, and as it turned out, things like educational transparency didn't happen. The caucus seemed to be right on that. Right. I mean, I certainly agree with the conservative caucus on on many th- on many, many things, but uh, the the blame for the dysfunctional uh, legislature this year is can go can be spread widely to to just about everyone. So each year we put out the uh, Show Me Institute blueprint. It's a bunch of policies that we think would be. Uh, positive for Missouri. David, uh, we put out our most recent one in December. The session is over. Has anything changed on your your items in the blueprint? What's it look like for 2023? No, I mean, un- unfortunately, the things we from the local government, municipal government, uh, special taxing district perspective, uh, the good news from the session again is that while we didn't get the reforms we wanted in those in those areas, we at least we were as well as members of the legislature who agree with us were able to stop some bad things, some of which, like land banks, had surprising amounts of support behind them. So I'm very happy that that stopped and look forward to ginning up to stop it again next year. And hopefully convincing people who are sponsoring this land bank legislation get a chance to talk with them over the next few months to explain why this, this policy idea is so bad for the state of Missouri. What about you, Patrick? I know we have a whole summer and the possibility of maybe a special session or something, but uh, if things stay as they are right now, what are your priorities for 2023? Any change? No, I mean, I think that the priorities uh, that were you know not uh, resolved this year have to be the priorities for next year. That's why they were priorities this year, you know, of course. So with, uh, you know, edu- education transparency is going to be, uh, you know, a, a top line item. I think that um, certainly the governor appears to be in support of that, which is good. Initially, he was very skeptical, I think, of that issue and said that, you know, the CRT wasn't being taught anywhere in the state, which wasn't wasn't true at the time. Uh, and uh, and so that has to be a, a big priority going forward. I think transparency in all ways, not just in uh, curricula, but of course in spending. 
Uh, I, we need to have transparent and accountable government, and I think that's going to remain a top priority until we, we get it exactly the way that it ought to be. So, Susan, we've talked a lot about the inaction during the legislative session, but one of the areas where there actually was quite a bit of movement was in your area of education. So uh, what got past the finish line? Sure, we got a smattering of things, which, you know, uh, all improvements, not none perfect, but all improvements on and you know what we've talked about in our legislative blueprint, but one that really needed to be done, and I'm glad the legislature uh, put aside their differences to make it happen, was to fix the funding for charter school students in Kansas City and St. Louis, Kansas City in particular, because charter schools and charter school students in Kansas City basically got their funding from Kansas City Public Schools and specifically from their state funding. And the state funding for Kansas City Public Schools is not getting any bigger. And the charter schools have outgrown it, which means each additional charter school or student that's added has to share the same sized pot of money, which means each kid gets less. And there's a, sort of a disincentive to open new charter schools because there's no more money, basically. So they fix that and the charter school students will be funded by, through the state and they'll be also fixed it in that charter school students will get all the sources of local funding that the traditional public school students get. They didn't used to, and they will. So that's nice. That's fixed. And that what that does is it, again, sort of like opens the doors so that more charter schools can um, are encouraged to open in Kansas City. Right now, 55% of parents have chosen charter schools in Kansas City. Schools have waiting lists and more parents want them. And now sort of that block is gone, which is great. Secondly, um, the virtual program, which is called MOCAP, got tweaked. Uh, the law, when it went into effect a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, stated that if you wanted to enroll your child in MOCAP full, full time, you had to get the permission of the superintendent. And the superintendent was supposed to, and the counselor was supposed to consider the request, just like anybody else requesting a class and not make it any different, but they didn't. They often taught, they lots of times said no, and one of the reasons they said no is that the kids, the full-time virtual student who learned over here, his test scores on the Missouri assessment program came back and went into that district's or that charter school's test scores. And, you know, superintendents were like, well, look, we're not teaching them. We really don't want to have their test scores. And also the money got funneled through the school district. So that was kind of a flaw in the law. What they did is they made it so that full-time virtual students, they still have to get permission, but it's predominantly the parents request that it drives the bus on that. And if a superintendent denies it, they have to have a good reason and notify in writing, but they're not supposed to deny it unless they have a very good reason. And the test scores are not going to be thrown back into the district's test score. So that's good. They improved that. And um, then we also had this crazy big omnibus bill come through, Senate Bill 681 that had all kinds of stuff in it. One thing it does have is that the um, APR scores, which is the annual performance report, and in Missouri, every school and district gets an annual performance report with a score. And they are between zero and 100, and it's kind of like the percentage of the points that you got out of the total possible points, which varies all across the board. So it's kind of a crazy system. We've written reports about it, talked about it a lot. But the schools and districts that are the lowest 5% of a, they're going to have to rank order all the scores, easy enough. The lowest 5% have to put it on their website that they're in the lowest 5% and they have to physically notify parents, like I guess a letter or somehow notify parents that the school is in the lowest 5%. I like that 
it's kind of some of the stuff we've talked about, except that the APR score itself is very problematic. It's a mishmash of stuff and it's about to get more watered down. We're on version five of APR, the MSIP five. We're going to MSIP six and the APR score is about to get murkier and include things like how many kids filled out college applications and things like that. So I'm glad that the bottom 5% has to notify, but I wish it was a better number that they were using to, to determine the bottom 5%. That is in there. And then finally, in appropriations, 50 million in basically stimulus funding is uh, has been appropriated through DESE to give scholarships of up to $1,500 to low-income students to close the gap. They're closing the gap scholarships. And basically, um, parents can use this, this money is supposed to go directly into an account with the student's name on it, and it can be used for tutoring, summer school, enrichment, Sylvan, you know, study skills, what, whatever it takes to try to begin to overcome the learning loss that happened in the last two years. And I think that this is great because like the empowerment scholarship funds from last year, the legislature and the governor, if he signs it, I don't know, I, that obviously is a caveat to all of this, um, the parents can be trusted to spend public money on their child's education. That it's not just the system that knows how to spend the money, but parents can be trusted to spend the money. So the more opportunities we have to put money directly into the hands of parents so that they can directly impact their child's education, the better. So I think that, that that's really promising. I hope they uh, appropriate funds for it next year because that, that, you know, parents have said the one thing they mostly want right now is tutoring and parents are paying for it themselves and a lot of parents can't. So I appreciate that the state has done that. So I think that there were a lot of legislators who wanted to, to pass good education policy this year. It just like so many things got caught up in the, you know, the sawdust and the engine at Jefferson City, but some things made it through. And so I'm glad to see that. that and progress. so for listeners interested in those close the gap scholarships, the details on that have yet to be decided, right? Who who qualifies, yeah, I mean, the how they apply. That, that's right. Bill says Desi, Desi will designate an organization to administer it and they will set up a way to open accounts, but none of that's happened. And with a lot of the stuff that happens in the legislative, legislative session, especially the stuff that gets like shoved through in the last week, you know, there's a note in there that there will be rulemaking to determine or regulating to determine how, how it actually gets implemented. So now we move into this phase. Now, the close the gap scholarships are the 2023 budget, which means technically that money will be appropriated July 1st. So technically that should be available to parents very soon thereafter. I'm, I don't know, I want to be optimistic, but I'm not that optimistic that Desi will just, you know, move with lightning speed to get this into parents' hands. But it is 2023 money. So I, I hope that they are good actors and set that up easy enough to do. We did a podcast with somebody who has a company called Class Wallet. Uh, easy enough. There's plenty of apps out there like Ven they're Venmo type things where you you set up an account in a student's name, you transfer the funds in electronically, and then there's limited approved vendors for what that money can be spent on. The technology is not the problem here, but will could be a little bit. David, the action in Jefferson City is over for the time being, but there's still plenty going on at the local level. Uh, there's a bill before the St. Louis Board of Aldermen, and uh, it looks like it's going to make it a little more expensive maybe for some rehabbers around. What's going on? If it passes, which I very much hope it will not. I, I hope it doesn't even pass the board, and if it does pass the board, 
it has to be voted on by the people of St. Louis, so I hope they vote it down. The proposal is to fine rehabbers $10,000 for every housing unit they take out as part of their redevelopment. So if you had a duplex and you bought it and turned it into a beautiful new single-family home, you'd get $10,000 fine for taking it from two housing units down to one. If you bought a four-family flat and turned it into a duplex, $20,000 fine for for removing two housing units as part of that rehab. This is a terrible, terrible idea. This is The city of St. Louis does not have a, a shortage of housing stock. This is a city that has set records for population decline over the past 60 to 70 years. We have plenty of housing stock in the city of St. Louis, much of it quite affordable. The idea that you would punish the rehab, redevelopment community stepping in, investing their own money and sweat equity to, to rebuild, rehab, uh, apartment buildings, single-family homes, whatever. The idea that you would punish them with a fine when there is no shortage of housing units in the city of St. Louis is beyond preposterous. So I very much hope that these two bills, 20, Board Bill 26 and Board Bill 29, I very much hope that they don't make it out of the Board of Aldermen, and if they do, that voters would vote them down. Since it's a new tax slash fee, it does have to be approved by the voters, and hopefully they would say no if it even gets to them. This is a uniquely terrible policy proposal and one that needs to be opposed vociferously in every way we can. And what uh, what stage is it in? What's the timeline? Very early stages. Just introduced. Hasn't been heard in, in committee Yet, uh, I don't know when the committee hearings are, are scheduled to be. It's not formally scheduled to go to, to be heard in committee at this time. But tr- it's something that the Show Me Institute will stay on, on top of because we do have papers and work by Patrick and Elias coming out on the question of low-income housing in Missouri and low-income housing tax credits, which are a, a failed solution for, for the problem of low-income housing in Missouri. So this fits right into that level of work that here's somebody trying to make, we don't have a low-income housing problem in St. Louis to a large extent, certainly, and here's somebody trying to address it in a way that will not address that and also will make the situation, will make housing opportunities and options worse in the city of St. Louis. A truly terrible set of bills. And so, as David mentioned, Patrick, you've been doing some work on affordable housing. On your... uh list of solutions, where would uh, fining people for reducing the number of housing units be? Uh, it would be nowhere on the list. I'm uh, glad to hear yeah. that, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that what you see in, in places like St. Louis and Kansas City too often is that they will essentially adopt the problems that they've heard about nationally, and, and they will say, well, I mean, San Francisco or Portland has this problem. So for us to be a big city, we have to to, to adopt that problem as well. And so for something like uh, density, St. Louis and Kansas City really don't have density problems but to the extent that you know you're you're trying to prevent people from taking a duplex to a you know single family house like maybe that's the only way that that house is going to be big enough for a, a modern family you know why would you penalize someone for doing that i think you you do start running into concerns if you have uh folks who are taking single family lots and trying to turn those into duplexes or to quadplexes because you might have uh, infrastructure burdens that have to be accounted for, or you need to have uh, additional parking to accommodate 
uh, you know, uh, uh, parking or cars on a street that wasn't designed to have poor people on that particular lot. But I think that, you, you know, to the extent that uh, cities are going any direction when it comes to uh, uh, setting those sorts of rules, I think that you should be liberalizing, you know, conscientiously, but liberalizing those rules so that if people want to add units or subtract units, that they're able to do it. But, the, you know, the, the idea that the folks in St. Louis are suddenly worried about de-densification of St. Louis in a city that had 800,000 people and now has 300,000 people in it. Uh, the, the problem, they're not getting less dense because duplexes are turning into single family homes. They're, they're getting less dense because the, the city is kind of, you know, um, bad at uh, keeping people safe. They're, they're bad at, uh, you know, the, the educational system has been bad. It should be, the, the city should be focusing its efforts on those sorts of areas. And, uh, you know, to the extent that they think that they're solving a problem by you know, taking away people's ability or for penalizing people uh, for what I would presume would be probably improvements to a, a particular lot going from a duplex to a single. Uh, I think that's nonsense. And, and unfortunately, I, but unfortunately, I think that Kansas City and St. Louis and a lot of cities across the, the country want to feel like they're part of like this larger struggle uh, in New York or, or San Francisco or wherever. Uh, and try to impose those sorts of policies that they think, you know, will will make them like those places. And that's that's just simply that's bad for citizens in the state. That's bad for citizens in St. Louis and Kansas City. Uh, it, and uh, I agree with David. This is a, a silly proposal that, you know, should should not be seriously uh, considered. And if and if the city of St. Louis is concerned about de-densification, why has it allowed one of its boards, I think the Historical Review Board, although it might might have been also the Architectural Preservation Boards, to shoot down not one but two new high-rise condo and apartment developments in the Central West End in the past year under the idea of preserving historic architecture that in neither case was truly architecturally significant. Uh, one, the old Optimist Club building, and one, the old Engineers Club building. Neither of them, I've been in I'm familiar with both those buildings. Nobody actually thinks they're historically or architecturally significant, yet they've rejected large plans to add apartments and condos there from developers that in neither case were asking for a subsidy. Uh, so it's just crazy that they're rejecting that and allowing that to be stopped, and then somebody on the board is proposing this idea. In Kansas City, you've seen that debate as well with, with should you be allowing more developments in certain, they tried to preserve the Cats, the Cats building there, the Cats drugstore building, and I think that should have been allowed to go forward as it was. Now there's, in Kansas City, you've also, with those projects, had a subsidy request, which is, should be rejected, but uh, turn down the subsidies, but allow the building, allow the construction to go forward nonetheless if the developer's willing. And finally, I think if there was a record for the most frequent topic touched on on this podcast unfortunately it would be the loop trolley and we get to add another tally mark here um they announced yesterday that it's it's coming back again 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 uh so it starts in august it's going to run on a limited term basis we're not sure if it's going to be free or not yet um it seems like they might have cited that cold weather was an issue with it operating before which it seems like if you're constructing a trolley in St. Louis, Missouri, perhaps the cold weather could have been accounted for. But, uh, David, uh, yesterday when you heard the news, were you uh, confused, excited? <laughs> Con confused, 
confused, certainly. Right. I, f- I feel like, yeah, I was definitely confused, like Kevin Nealon in a Saturday Night Live film reviewing sketch. Um, yes, very concerned that the loop trolley is coming back like this. It seems preposterous that it won't be run in the wintertime, which seems to me one of the few times where it might actually be a little helpful if you'd rather ride the trolley for three or four blocks along the loop than, than walk it in the in wintertime. Uh, right, it's just, it's a pro, it's a, it should have never been started. It has been a failure from the get-go. There's no need for this trolley. This, as I keep saying over and over, this this area of St. Louis, the St. Louis, the loop region, is one of the re- areas of our state that is best served by transit. I mean, there's a Metrolink route that serves it in part. There's buses that serve it well. There's Wash U. So many of the people who live in that area are involved at Washington University as students or teachers or whatnot, employees. They have Wash U Transit that's serving, transit buses serving them. So this, and not to mention it's a lovely place just to walk with plenty of, and if you want to drive in from the area, there's plenty of parking that you can then enjoy walking the loop. So it's, I mean, the ridership totals were just beyond preposterously low. They're not going to be increased. We seem to be doing this to not, have to pay back the federal government, which is a very legitimate reason to do it, to do the bare minimum, to not owe the federal government the money back. And if we have to do this for 10 to 20 years, that seems to be the situation we're in. Patrick, doesn't that clearly demonstrate some of the perverse incentives from government programs like this if the justification for continuing to run a project that we clearly see very light, if no demand for, but you have to keep throwing money at the project because you're worried that the government will call back the money that it gave you for the project in the first place. Oh, you're exactly right. And, but I, I also think that it's a really great example. Like I was saying before about affordable housing is that you'll have these, you know, hot projects, you know, Portland has a streetcar, a light rail, you know, there, there's, there's all, you know, Denver has, you know, these sorts of like slow moving, you know, people movers essentially where you can almost walk as fast as the, the vehicle, you know, rides or drives. And, uh, you know, but a lot of times those are kind of exported through federal policy. They're subsidized through tiger grants and all sorts of different mechanisms. Uh, and you end up having, uh, you know, local taxpayers on the hook for an extended period of time for a project that really is never going to pay for itself. It, it, it was, wasn't was a good investment at the beginning. It's not going to be a good investment at the end. And, and like David said, there is now this need for capital preservation by allowing the scene to continue on so that uh, the city uh, and uh, you know the region isn't in a worse spot as a result of realizing and accepting that this loop trolley did not work. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. You know, if you subsidize something, you certainly get more of it. And uh, certainly in recent years, federal government has subsidized a lot of these sorts of projects in no small part because I think, you know, regions that have these sorts of, you know, rail services like to export their ideas. And, and, and a lot of times that export is done through uh, federal grant making. And uh, certainly Kansas City has done uh, similar kinds of projects with its uh, a light rail, its streetcar. Uh, it's going to be in Kansas City. They're actually going to be extending it. So, um, the, but the idea that these are the drivers of development uh, is simply just not true. And when you look at the research on this, 
what you really see is that the reason that areas uh, uh, around streetcars oftentimes blow up is because they're also getting tax subsidies uh, all along that route. Uh, and so um, there, there's a lot of, I guess, maybe pride also wrapped up in these sorts of projects. Uh, no one wants to admit that they screwed up. Uh, but when you're talking about uh, the, the loop trolley or you're talking about the Kansas City streetcar, um, you know, they really should never have gone in to begin with. And now it's just a matter of mitigating the harm that they might have created, mitigating future tax incentives that are definitely being plowed into those areas as a way to justify those projects uh, to begin with. So, so absolutely. Like the one, the one positive. It's not really a positive, but the one thing I would say about the streetcar, or, or MetroLink in St. Louis is, is let that be the subsidy. And what I mean by that is, when a developer wants to build an apartment building or condo building or whatever near MetroLink, near the streetcar, and they ask for subsidies as they continually, frequently do, I think the response should be the city is no. You know, the streetcar. Is a, is a subsidy. We will li- we will reduce your parking requirements because you're building right next to Metrolink buses, streetcar, whatever. So I do agree that you should allow the, those developers to have significantly reduced parking requirements because they might pre- presumably have young people there who use transit or target towards that. So that's that's good. But don't then say, well, we subsidize the public transit here. Oh, you 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 want a fifty million dollar TIF? or a t- probably a lower amount, a $20 million TIF for your new building there. All right, here's your TIF. I mean, that's where it's insane. Stop. Let the original part be the subsidy and then stop from there. Just completely stop. Like there's a development in the in St. Louis City right on the loop, a proposal at Del Mar and Skinker, and it's a high-rise apartment building focused towards Wash U students. And I think it would be fantastic, but there's a lot of, a lot of NIMBY in that region of of St. Louis uh, opposed to it, and I think it would be unfortunate for that development to be a uh, to be killed, as it well might be. Susan, any reaction to the uh, loop trolley coming back in August? No, but I used I might have been a NIMBY at one time. <laughs> we've we've all <laughs> been a NIMBY at some point. You know what I mean? Like, but anyway. So finally, uh, the last segment of the podcast is always what are you keeping tabs on over the next week? And during the legislative session, it was obviously tracking bills. So uh, I don't know. We'll see what you guys are up to uh, now that the session is over. Patrick, what do you keep an eye on over the next week? Uh, legislative wrap, but mostly going through uh, some of the legislation that passed, making sure that there wasn't anything amended that uh, where the language was uh, really terrible. So far, so good. Uh, but that'll take probably a week or, or more. Uh, we're also, of course, uh, going to be putting out, uh, Elias Chappellis specifically is going to be putting out a low-income housing tax credit paper very soon. We as an organization will also be talking about affordable housing more broadly. Uh, but I think that that's a key and important and foundational paper that uh, we'll be talking a whole lot, and I'll be talking a whole lot about uh, in, the, in the weeks and months ahead as well. But uh, near-term legislative session wrap-up. Uh, a lot of a lot of sadness, but uh, you know you got to look forward, uh, and I think that there are opportunities for reform going forward uh, that uh, didn't get done this year, but may get done later this year or maybe next year as well. David, looking to keep tabs on how the 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 large cities and counties in Missouri move forward with spending so much of the infrastructure and and stimulus funds that they've gotten from the federal government, so much of which. So much of which has not been spent yet. And 
I don't have any objection that it hasn't been spent. I think it, much of it will be spent poorly and help continue to keep inflation high as this huge amounts of federal largesse are just stre- strewn about our state. That said, I'm sure in some cases it, it will be spent in beneficial ways. So just looking to st- forward to staying on top of that and supporting where I can and criti- criticizing a plenty as well. And Susan. Well, I don't want to make everyone jealous here, but I will be going through the Desi budget line by line. It's 100 pages. And uh, just preview preview of what's to come, which is to say, I, I feel like we've I've put a lot of emphasis in the last year or two on really um, deconstructing the academic achievement in this state at the school and district level. Now I want to follow the money. And Desi's budget is almost $14 billion. And I want to understand thoroughly all the dollars that are coming in and all the dollars that are going out. And just looking through it, you know, there's a lot of line items that raise questions, but I'm going line by line. And I'm gonna put that together with their uh, annual state board report from last year so that we, that I can better understand and I can share with folks how, uh, how it is that we spend $13,000 per child because it's, uh, it's a mystery and that's what I'll be working on. And of course, to my, to the earlier point, seeing what they do to uh, begin the rulemaking on all of this legislation that they've got going. All right. Well, as always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Thank you for listening. And David, Susan, and Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you.